right, guys. It's time for another episode of Consistent Calvinism. Um, first things first, we uh, had Leighton respond to one of my episodes. He did a two-part response, uh, live and on the fly, which I really appreciate that, Leighton. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Uh, Leighton wanted to know what my name was. Um, what, my name is Colin, if anybody cares. Um, I've just spent most of my life on the internet, you know, playing games or doing this and that, so I just use screen names most of the time. I'm, you know, I'm not really seeking any attention towards me. I just like to talk about these issues. So you can call me whatever you want. You can call me Colin. You can call me Consistent Calvinist. You can call me Colin the Calvinist. doesn't matter to me. All right. So it's up to you. Um, I want to say that Leighton, Leighton said a couple nice things about me. He said that I seem to want to be fair and all that sort of thing. Um, I certainly do. Um, you can listen to any of my other episodes. The, 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 worst, the worst you'll get out of me is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I can be a little stern sometimes, right? Um, the way my voice tone of voice might come across seems a little stern but i don't think i've ever called anybody any names or anything like that and if i ever do something terrible call me out on it in public so that i can in public repent of it right perfectly fine with doing that um, but i think that we might be able to have a lot of fun over time with these back and forth and i say over time because this is my main point here i don't do this full time i've got a lot of stuff going on i do this when i can on the side um, so you'll just have to bear with me in that sense you have plenty of other things to fill the gaps obviously I'm just saying that um, as I put these responses out, there's going to be some delays, um, which brings me to the format of what I'm doing. You had um, two important questions for me. That was, first, what is the relationship between our moral aspect of our ontology, and how could I be saying that God is changing our ontology without making us ontologically better? Point number one, that's going to be the point of this episode. I tried to keep it as short as I could. There's, there's just, I think that these things are important enough where I, I don't think I repeated much, and I think I got in things that needed to be talked about. So this episode's going to be a little over an hour. Sorry about that. Um, I'm also going to provide the timestamps so that you can uh, look ahead and, and before you do it and say, oh, I want to focus here and here and here. Try not to jump around too much, I would say, or at least include the important things. Um, but the timestamps are really helpful. I had a listener who's been with me from the start take the time and effort to go through my first episode, which was like five hours, and make timestamps. And I recommend you do that with your videos as well. If you haven't already, I'm sure you have listeners that would be perfectly happy to do that because it's very, very helpful. All you do is you, you put those timestamps, you paste them into the description in YouTube, and YouTube automatically sections out on the video, on the little timeline, um, all of the timestamps with the captions of what you've got there. So that would help a lot of people, including me, people who are actually reviewing you, because we might know that you said something somewhere, but we want to look for it quickly. And it's very, it would be much easier to go through and see if you had things laid out categorically by timestamp. Um, so the other, the other two things I want to cover in, in the next two episodes, I'm going to, instead of making this one long three-hour episode, I'm going to break it into three-hour episodes, and hopefully that helps. I don't know if it will. The next topic is going to be what, what is the relationship of influence to our choices? And the third category is going to be, is God the author of evil? So it's up to you if you want to take these one at a time or wait till they're all out, break them up, however you want to do it. Um, I apologize. I've made them as short as I can and yet still feel justified in my mind that I'm not leaving things out, if that makes sense. So with that said, once again, um, let's get started here. And again, don't take my, my sternness or tone of voice for any sort of ill will against you. I'm just trying to address the, uh, the issues here. So the first thing that Leighton wanted me to focus on was the idea of our moral abilities and how it relates to our ontological existence. And how is it that I could be claiming in my earlier episode that he responded to, how could I claim that God can change our ontological existence so that we'd be doing something better, such as believing in God, without making our actual ontological existence better than the unbeliever? And I think this just comes down to what our reference point for better is, right? This is where we get more specific about terms and really clear up what we mean. Okay, so uh, I'm going to, Leighton even quotes the definition here that I'm going to play so that we can work with that, and I just want to see if maybe Leighton can meet me halfway on this, and, and I just want to ask Leighton, can you at least understand where I was coming from with my overall point, right? I was addressing with very strict and repeated qualification that when God changes our heart, he's not adding something to our heart in terms of a natural faculty or capacity, such as the ability to believe, period. He's not adding something to our heart. And Leighton even... Uh, quotes the definition. Let's, let's hear the definition of ontology. Here we go. Definition of ontology from the dictionary. Relating to the branch of metaphysics, dealing with the nature of being. Uh, even if you want to go to here, what is ontology in simple terms? In brief, ontology is a branch of philosophy, the science of which the kinds and structures of objects. Okay. In simple terms, ontology... So, 
kinds and structures of objects, right? Kinds and structures of objects or beings. So you see, I was focused on what makes a human being a human being, right? What is our quote unquote structure? What does it consist of? What, what is it that makes us what we are, right? So we can talk about our obvious physical structure, like head, arms, legs, eyes, etc. But as far as our topic is concerned, we're, we're referencing our quote unquote spiritual structure, right? And what is that made up of? Right? You can start talking about the mind, the intellect, emotion, love, hatred, trust, forgiveness, and the topic at hand, faith. Right? My point was very simple. Ontologically speaking, we all start off, even as fallen sinners, with all of those faculties. We all have all of them. So when God regenerates a person, my point was that he's not adding a new faculty to their heart that wasn't already there. Right? What he's doing is changing their heart so that they will want to properly use the faculties they've always, that have always been there which they have been wrongly using their entire lives. Now, I know Leighton understands what I just put forth. He, he said so in his response and was actually quite annoyed, as you'll see in a bit here, quite annoyed by my pointing these things out as if he wasn't aware of them, right? And we'll get to that. My point wasn't necessarily that Leighton wasn't aware of them. I was just responding to his article. But I just want Leighton and the rest of you guys to see that I had a very specific point that I was making about my use of the, in, the, in the terms of ontology, or at least my understanding of the word, and that... Even the very definition of the word includes the idea of the structure of beings. Um, and my point was that we're not being made ontologically better in terms of our structure, right? Now, if Leighton can meet me halfway on that and simply recognize, okay, yeah, I see your point there, then I'll gladly meet him half, halfway from his angle, which was to push back on the fact that even our, mo the, our moral aspect of, of who we are is included in that which makes up our quote-unquote existence or being. So listen to this clip. This is just a continuation of his reading the definition here. In simple terms, ontology seeks the classification explanation of entities. Ontology concerns the claims about the nature of being and existence. Okay? So does the moral capacity of a human being from birth have to do with their ontological nature, their being? Yes. Now, to keep this general, I, I'm fine and, and I'm willing to take that and try to understand it. Okay? And I think that... Doing so is really going to help us find out if we are even agreeing on the idea of moral ability or inability in the first place, okay? Because it's my opinion and my contention that just because you might use the phrase, you know, quote-unquote moral ability, doesn't mean that you are necessarily using that or understanding that in the, in the same way that Calvinists like myself are, okay? And the only way we can clear this up is by getting to the bottom uh, of, this, of this idea of moral inability and seeing where we can agree, so I'd like to take a moment to put, if we can just try to put Calvinism and determinism off to one side and take free will and put it off to the other side, and let's just see if we can agree on, on a few things. Okay, remember, Leighton agrees that there is, uh, I should say, in my opinion, I see him as agreeing. I've gotten the, the hint that Leighton agrees that there is such a th thing as a distinction between natural and moral ability. I don't think Leighton um, is merely claiming to recognize the Calvinist distinction and saying, well, well, that's just something Calvinists make up. I think he actually grants that there is an actual distinction um, when he says something like this. Hear me now, because I, I think you'll probably listen to this. We understand the difference between the natural capacities and the moral capacities. And that we just might have a difference in the way we understand the reality of it, right? I specifically remember, I don't want to go get the, the clip, but in episode three, when I reviewed one of his short videos, he said that we as provisionists believe that we are all created with both the natural and moral ability, right? So obviously there's got to be some sort of distinction there that even Leighton recognizes. So if we all agree that there's a reality behind it, let's just try to put our differences aside for a moment and try to find some common ground, right? What does it mean to have a moral inability? What does that actually look like? Now, I know I already mentioned it in the last episode that, that Leighton reviewed, but I want to revisit Genesis 37.4 because I think it's absolutely critical to properly understanding this issue. Uh, the verse speaks of Joseph's brothers, once again, and, and it says with crystal clarity that they hated him and they could not, unable, inability, they could not speak peaceably to him. Okay, plain, plain words. So I have a very simple question. Okay, could they speak peaceably to him? Right, and as far as I see it, and I think this is where I'm just trying to get everybody on board, everybody to agree. As far as I can see it, there's only two ways to answer that question, right? This is where we're going to find out if we even have this common ground to begin with, right? Could they have spoken peaceably to him? The verse says no, but what does it mean by that, okay? If we're asking this with reference to 
the natural faculty or capacity to speak in general, the obvious answer is, well, they, they could have, right? They could have spoken peaceably to him. We'd all agree that Joseph's brothers had the basic ability to speak, right? And they also had the, the ability to speak peaceably, right? They have the ability to do that in the general sense, right? They spoke the same language. It's not like their mouths were sewn shut. There's nothing holding them back, quote unquote, um, from speaking peaceably to him, right? But what's the qualifier? The qualifier is if they wanted to, right? Which brings us to the wanting, to the moral aspect. So let's ask the question again. Could Joseph's brothers speak peaceably to him? The verse literally says, no, they could not. So unless there's a third category that I'm not aware of, right? Which we're supposed to be considering. Maybe Leighton can point out a third category. If there's not a third category, I think it's safe to say that this verse is speaking of their moral inability to speak peaceably to him, right? Right, after all, it's... it's not just the simple act of speaking, but it's specifically the way in which, right, we speak, which is obviously of a moral idea, and the fact that hatred is mentioned here is pointing to the moral aspect. I think we can all agree that this verse is putting forth the concept of moral inability in the clearest possible terms. So, does moral inability exist? Is there such a thing, and what does it look like? I think right here is the answer. So, my first question for Leighton is, do you agree with this, right? Are we in agreement so far, right? This is obviously something that is going to be true regardless of whether free will is true or whether determinism is true. This is just appears to be a fact of reality that that the Bible puts forth, right? And I think that we speak this way all the time, right? Um, you've got the biblical references, first of all. Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably. Mindset on the flesh cannot submit to the law of God. No one can come to me unless they're drawn. You know, we'll argue those texts later, but the point is that they're, those are not talking about natural abilities. They're talking about moral abilities, right? And we talk this way all the time. We, we might say, I can't forgive somebody. And everybody knows what we mean by that. Because we hate them for a particular reason, it's we, we can't forgive them for, the, for the, moral, the moral reason, not because we can't forgive, period, right? Or maybe I can't eat something. Well, it doesn't mean I can't put it in my mouth and chew. It just means I might find it so disgusting that I can't eat it. Or those of you who are parents, I think you can directly relate to the fact that you can't harm your child, right? Your, your great love for your child results in you being able to claim a moral inability, at least at the time of your loving them, that you cannot harm your child. So this is just, I'm trying to get get us all on common ground and, and, and realize that this is a, a fact of reality. But now what I really want to drive home is is to get people to recognize what moral ability actually is, right? Because it's my contention that when Leighton uses the phrase moral ability, he's thinking of it more more like another faculty, right? It's just, just, just this bare basic faculty that we can basically use one way or another. That's what he means when he says, we all believe we're created with both the natural and moral capacity. Well, if you don't distinguish those two things and explain them, then they both just sound like basic faculties that, again, he believes in free will that you will take and use one way or another. Rather than understanding, in my opinion, that moral ability is tied directly to the current moral disposition which is in play right? That, that word current, we're going to get to in a minute here. It's very important to recognize that nobody's saying moral dispositions and moral abilities don't change, right? What we're saying is that when a moral inability is in place, when it is, occur is occurring, it is directly tied to the current moral disposition, which is in play, okay? So you'll notice that if, if we are agreeing on all this, that, that it is a moral inability being spoken of here in Genesis 37.4, right? This is the direct result of their hatred, right? Their hatred is what makes this moral inability a moral inability in the first place, right? So Leighton's going to be quick to point out, oh, well, their brothers might have been hating them right then and there, but that doesn't mean they can't love him later on. And I actually fully agree, right? That's, that's another discussion. How and why dispositions change is another discussion. I've, I've never said that these dispositions can't change. I've never said that Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, therefore they must have hated him his whole life. That's, that's not the point. Okay, dispositions can change, and therefore more abilities will change. The more uh, moral inabilities resulting from those dispositions will change along with them, right? Now, I, as a determinist, would say that they change for specific reasons, whereas Leighton would say we use our free will to change them. We'll address that later on. I'm just trying to keep this simple uh, and on common ground, right? That's actually a separate discussion. I, I want to ask the simple question, while, right? While Joseph's brothers hated him, could they have spoken peaceably to him? The obvious answer is no. That's the entire point of the verse. The brothers needed, need to stop hating him in order for their, them to be able, morally speaking, to be able to speak peaceably to him, right? 
In the same way that someone needs to stop hating another person in order to forgive them, as long as they hate them, they might be able to say, I can't forgive them, right? To, to, to put forth the moral inability that is the result of that hatred. In the same way parents who love their children would say, I can't murder my children or I can't harm my children. It's the disposition that results in the moral ability or inability. So regardless of how or why dispositions might change in the future, and we're going to talk about that later on, I just want to get us all to agree that while a disposition of hatred is in place, the moral inability to speak peaceably is present. That's very important to the point that I'm trying to get at here, okay? So, Leighton, are we agreeing so far that while Joseph's brothers, while that disposition of hatred is in place, they can't speak peaceably, and that is a moral inability, okay? Can you agree with that, even given your free will worldview, that moral inability exists, and it exists as a result of dispositions? And as long as those dispositions are in place, that moral ability can be spoken of as existing, right? So let's try to understand this now in your free will view, right? Put Calvinism aside. Let's grant free will. So when someone uses their free will to hate God, right? While they're hating God, can it be said that because they hate God, they're unable to come to him, unable to believe in him, unable to trust in him while they hate God? Can that be spoken of as a moral inability while they're hating him? Right? And there's only two answers. Either yes, Leighton has been following along and agreeing with everything we've laid out so far, and so we're all on the same page. Or maybe Leighton would say, no, that's that's not a moral inability, in which case I, I circle back to being the beginning and being a, unable to understand how you could make sense out of Genesis 37.4 and what it means when it says they hated him and could not speak peaceably. So I'm just going to assume that, for the sake of argument, Leighton does agree that even in a free will view, as long as someone is using their free will to hate God, they can be said to be morally unable to come to him and trust in him. Okay, right? That's that's what I'm going to assume for this ar- the sake of this argument. Because it's Leighton's answer to, to that question, which brings me to the main point of all of this, right? Why did I take the time to lay this all out? Because of Leighton's insistence that even the idea of morality is included in our ontological ex- existence, as he said here. Okay, so does the moral capacity of a human being from birth have to do with their ontological nature, their being. Yes. Okay, I'm willing to go right along with that. And after what I've laid out, listen to what Leighton says here. This is very important. Listen closely. Which is better? A person who is morally unable to believe the gospel or a person who is morally able to believe the gospel? Which is better? Ontologically better. Not just doing better, but according to Leighton, his whole argument against me here is Calvinism has God making people ontologically better. Which is which is better, a heart or a person that can morally able to believe, or a person or a heart that is morally unable to believe? According to Leighton, the one who is morally able to believe the gospel. Okay, the the person who is or heart that is morally able to believe the gospel is ontologically better than a heart which is morally unable. Okay, so Leighton wants to tie the idea of morality into ontological betterness or worseness, right? And we can take that and apply it, that that very same logic, all the way down the line to any moral ability that we might look at, such as the ones we already looked at before, right? If, if what Leighton said is true, then a heart which loves God and is morally able to come to him is ontologically better than a heart which hates God and is morally unable to come to him. Or as far as Joseph's brothers are concerned... A heart which loves their brother and is morally able to speak peaceably to him is ontologically better than a heart which hates them, hates their brother, and is morally unable to speak peaceably to him. Uh, we could say that a heart which loves someone and is morally able to forgive them of a particular transgression against them is ontologically better, according to Leighton, than a heart which hates the transgressor and is morally unable to forgive them. Right? Even, for, even if it's for a time. Right? A heart which loves their child and is morally unable to harm their child, is ontologically better than a heart that hates their child, and is morally able to do them harm. You could go on and on and on, right? And according to Leighton's reasoning and his statements here, if you want to tie morality and moral ability to the betterness of ontology, it's, you know, it's one thing to say that ontology includes those things, and I don't think I ever once denied that our existence didn't include a moral aspect. I specifically said that God is making a change in our heart, but if you want to say that the change in heart is a change in ontology that can be described as better or worse, not just a change, which I admitted to, but actually a change for better or worse, then here's the killing blow. This is the entire purpose and point of what I've set up here. Because Leighton, 
you, you have unknowingly shot yourself in the foot as far as this entire argument and discussion is concerned and the reason that you wrote that article, right, that I was responding to in the first place. You've shot yourself in the foot by insisting on these things because now all that needs to be pointed out is that while my view might have God making me, according to your, to your logic, ontologically better, my view might have God making me ontologically, quote-unquote, ontologically better by changing my heart so that I stop hating him and start loving him, at least I have God making the change, right? God is the one who, according to your own terms, makes me or made me ontologically better. But your view, your view has you making yourself ontologically better by changing your own heart. So the original question at hand, did you believe because you were better? The thing that starts this entire discussion, did you believe because you were better? If you insist that my answer must be yes, God has made me ontologically better by changing my heart, then your answer must also be yes, right? I changed my own heart and made myself ontologically better. That's the end result, right? So I guess, again, according to your own terms, we both answer the question, did you believe because you're better by saying yes, because according to you, a change in heart away from hatred of God to loving of God qualifies as an ontological change for the better, according to your own definitions here. But at least my view has God making the difference. And this is why I laid out what I laid out earlier. If, if Leighton agrees there's a such thing as moral inability and it's a result of dispositions, then when people or while people, even with their free will, are hating God, it can be said that they hate God and are unable to come to him. But even if you say that, well, they can use their free will to change that disposition of hatred onto loving so that then they are, they are then morally able to come to him, that is a change you are bringing about in yourself. And it's an ontological change. According to Leighton, it is an ontological change for the better. So you have made yourself better. And looking back at Leighton's article, one of his statements was, um, we provisionists, we are the ones who teach that everyone can believe the gospel, right? To which I said in my response, wait a minute, even Calvinists believe that everyone can, quote unquote, believe the gospel if we're talking about the natural ability, the faculty of belief, right? Everybody could believe the gospel if they wanted to. Even Calvinists believe that. We're simply saying that God changes our heart so that we will want to use that faculty properly, right? He doesn't make our ontology better, in, in my view. He doesn't make our ontology better by adding to it. He simply changes it so that it's functioning differently. And Leighton responds by saying, no, you know, silly Calvinist, a change in heart is an ontological change for the better. I guess he would say, well, if it's changed to function better, then it must be ontologically better, right? That's his own logic, and that's fine. To which I say, okay, right, you want to take it that far? then you've just refuted your entire point from the start. Because both of our views have changes of heart occurring. Both our views have people's hearts changing. The only difference is, in my view, God's making the change. And in your view, you're making the change with your free will, right? But by your own claim, it's still an ontological change for the better. And so you did believe because you were better, right? All of this follows regardless Again, of, of whether or not free will or determinism is true, right? Because both sides have hearts changing. It follows regardless of how or why the dispositions and the moral uh, abilities resulting from those dispositions change in the future as well. That's another discussion. The point is here, both sides have hearts changing. And when Leighton says earlier in his article, he says, On provisionism, all people have the necessary insight and moral capacity to respond to God's appeal. All people have the moral capacity, according to Leighton. But wait a minute. If somebody's hating God, isn't that a moral inability to come to him? While someone's hating God, can they come to him? You would say, obviously not. They have to stop hating him and start loving him in order to be morally able to come to him. So when you say that all people have the necessary insight and, and moral capacity, I, this demonstrates, my point is that we're not using those terms in the same way. In my view, moral capacity is the result of dispositions. You seem to be speaking of moral capacity as just another faculty in general, right? So you really need to clear up what you mean by answering my simple questions. Number one, is there such a thing as moral inability in the first place? If so, what is it the result of? Do you admit it's the result of the dispositions of the heart towards a person? And, and if so, when someone's hating God, while they're hating God, while that disposition of hatred is in place, are they morally able to come to him and to believe in him and to trust in him? And if you say yes, that's just completely logical, right? You have to say, not while they're hating him, they have to start loving him before they're morally able to do those things. 
And if you go down that road, then you've lost this particular argument, right? Because we all come, it all comes back to my point here. If you want to insist that a change of heart makes a heart ontologically better, then okay, Calvinism has God making people ontologically better, but at least we can credit God with it, whereas your free will view has you making yourself ontologically better. So once again, both our views have people's hearts changing, right? The only difference is who's doing the changing. That's the only difference in our views. And once again, that answer is completely irrelevant. It's important, and it's a separate discussion, but it's irrelevant to the point that I'm making, and that is, according to Leighton's own definitions, a change in heart, right, is an ontological change for the better, or for the worse in some cases. So you did believe because you were better, and all of this follows regardless of whether or not free will is true or determinism is true, and it all follows regardless of how or why the dispositions might change in the f and the moral abilities might change in the future. The point is that they are changing, whether it's determinism that's changing it, or God changing it, or free will changing it. According to Leighton, those changes are making the heart, the person, ontologically better. So you guys can see why getting to the bottom of these things and really pinpointing what we mean makes all the difference. Okay, it's extremely important. And it's, it's, it's a little funny because Leighton threw out a, a short criticism of Calvinism in his response by basically saying, well, they always like to pinpoint, let, let me play it here. It doesn't change the argument. This, this, is, this, is what, this is oftentimes what you'll get in these kinds of debates is that, that they'll find one little thing that they can just nitpick on. Oh, you're using the wrong vocabulary word here. Or you should explain it this way in a philosophical this way. Or not use the, the word ontology is used more in this sense, not in this sense. And yet that's precisely what you did earlier, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how you get to the bottom of these things, right? These sorts of things are absolutely necessary in these discussions, right? And, and, and this, this criticism came way, way after he, he himself sought to pinpoint terms by quoting the definition of ontology in, in attempts to show me that I'm wrong, right? He was trying to show that I wasn't properly using the term and that he was properly using the term. So he recognizes these types of qualifications are necessary in these discussions, and, and I'm, so I'm not quite sure why he throws out that, that criticism later when, I, when I'm talking about faculties and the difference between moral and natural ability. Again, Leighton thinks, I've used that term thousands of times. I've made that quote-unquote qualification thousands of times, natural ability, moral ability. Just because you're using those phrases, this is why I just went through all of, all of what I went through. Just because you're using those phrases doesn't mean you're using them in the same way, doesn't mean that people listening to you are understanding the same thing, and me nitpicking that is the only way I can make an argument against you, right? Pinpointing terms is the only way that these discussions can gain any traction. Now, I'd like to make a few just really quick points here before we move on to the topic of influences and choices. I'd first like to address how Leighton um, seems very irritated that I responded to his article by pointing out the difference between natural ability and moral ability. Um, here's a clip of him saying that he's basically made that distinction plain and clear to everybody since the beginning. I guess since he was a Calvinist. I don't know. How many times have I given the qualification that Calvinists aren't saying that people want to be saved, want to come to Jesus, but just can't? How many times have I said their wanter is broken? They can't want to. They're morally incapable. How many times do I make that qualification? I know this guy listens to me regularly. He's had to hear me make that qualification dozens upon dozens of times because it is a pet peeve of mine for whenever a Calvinist goes, well, he can't do it because he doesn't want to as if I haven't already conceded that point with regard to what Calvinism, what Calvinism teach. I used to make that point all the time. And here's a clip where he says, I've, I've said it thousands and thousands of times on this show and, and other episodes. And you'll, you'll start off by hearing me. This is him responding to me. Okay. We aren't saying that, that before we were believers, uh, our, our faith box was broken, and then God magically fixes it, so now we can do something that the unbelievers can't do. What we're saying is that we can do something the unbelievers could do if they wanted to, but the reason... As if I have not made that qualification thousands of times on this episode, and on these shows. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to point out, again, you may very well have made um, a, a distinction thousands of other times in the past, but how unfortunate is it that your very article that I was responding to was not one of those thousands of times, right? I mean, don't you think that your article on this very topic might not be a good place to make mention of these distinctions and these things that you claim to properly rec uh, represent us on all the time? Why did I have to come along and, and do it? Why did I have to come along and make an episode responding to clear these things up? I was responding to your article when I said what I said. And it doesn't do the readers of your article much good either, right? You, as the author of that article, might know and understand these things, but you didn't include those things in your article... And therefore, those reading your article might come away with the very false understandings that I was seeking and attempting to point out in my response. 
That was the point of my response, right? If you had said those things in your article, there would been there would have been no reason for my uh, my episode in the first place, and that's proven by the fact that instead of saying, "Well, you silly Calvinist," I made that clear right there in the article you're responding to, and then pointing to the place in the article that would have been all you would have needed to say in your response. Instead, you had to say things like, "Oh, I've made that those distinctions thousands of other times in a galaxy far, far away," as if even if that were true. It somehow disqualifies me from making the arguments that I made in my video, or somehow disqualifies me from responding to your article, okay? Now, I know, I've listened to Leighton for a while, I know that he has used the phrase, the phrases natural and moral ability many times before. Uh, and in fact, I think he did use the phrase, and in, in, he, he used the phrase in his article, but the entire point here is that just because you use the phrase doesn't mean, number one, that you mean the same things I mean by it and are using it in the same ways that I am, as this clear is, is clearly demonstrated by our interaction here as a whole. Or that, number two, that when you use the phrase that your readers or listeners automatically understand what is entailed by it as well, right? Just because you use that phrase doesn't mean your readers automatically understand what I laid out in my response to your article, right? I also want to point out that if you do have a full and accurate understanding of what Calvinists mean when we distinguish between natural and moral ability, why is it then that you have continually, right, and ho given horrible analogies on your episodes and allowed your guests to make horrible misrepresentations of Calvinism on this issue, and they go completely uncorrected by you? I mean, I just did an episode titled Abandoning Our Free Will Intuitions, which was a response to an episode you did with Braxton Hunter about four months ago. It's not that long ago. Right? Let's hear what your guest Braxton Hunter puts forth as what Calvinism is teaching and why it's horrible with this idea that God is commanding people to do things they can't physically do, even if they wanted to, and then holding them responsible and Calvinism's terrible. And just notice your complete lack of correction. Listen to this. The example that I've given in your presence, Leighton, before is if I tell my, I don't have a five-year-old daughter anymore, but, but when I did, if I tell my five-year-old daughter to pick up her doll and take it to her bedroom and she doesn't do it, well, then she's got no excuse. She does not have a good excuse because that doll probably weighs a half a pound. And this is going to demonstrate my point precisely. So he's talking about his daughter picking up a doll that she is able to pick up, but she just doesn't want to, right? So what, that's a moral choice, right? It's not a, it's not a physical limitation. It's in the moral category. She doesn't want to. But if I tell my five-year-old daughter to pick up the couch with me laying on it and carry that to her bedroom, and she doesn't do it, she's got a darn good excuse. It literally wasn't possible for her to do any such thing. And they literally couldn't because they were determined not to. And so there you have Leighton's guest putting forth an absurd misrepresentation as if the Calvinist God is commanding people to do things that they couldn't do even if they wanted to, right? The poor little girl can't lift up um, the couch with you on it even if she wanted to, and that's like what Calvinism is saying. And yet when I come along and point out that, no, there's a difference between commanding somebody to do something they can't do, period, and commanding somebody to do something that they could do, but they just don't want to because they hate you, and so they don't want to obey you. When I come and point that out, Leighton here says, oh, what, I'm irritated by that. I've, I've, been put, I've been making that clear from the beginning thousands and thousands of times. Well, where's your correction here? And again, as, as if that wasn't bad enough, instead of correcting him on this misrepresentation, by explaining the difference between natural and moral ability, and which he, in his last response to me, claims that he perfectly understands, right? What better, what better chance or opportunity to expose, or I should say demonstrate that you understand Calvinism properly and distinguishing between natural and moral ability than to correct your, your guest here on his horrible representation. Instead of correcting it, you actually, Leighton actually doubles down and gets behind this horrible analogy as it goes on here. You don't escape the consequences. That's the point, <laughs> Britain, is, okay, uh, suppose Braxton said to his daughter, pick me up, pick the couch up, carry me up the stairs. And when she can't do it, he gets up and beats her. Okay? Right, so Leighton doubles down on it. And here was my response. Yeah, and that's an absurd misrepresentation of the position. Nobody is saying that the mean, nasty Calvinist God is commanding people to believe in him when they really want to believe in him but can't. Nobody is saying that God is commanding people to do things that they can't naturally, in terms of faculties, do, and then punishing them for not being able to, to do those things. What we're saying is that God is commanding people to do things that they don't want to do, and then punishing them on the basis of their not wanting to do what they could have done. So that's my response, and that's what I laid out in the episode that Leighton, uh, the episode of mine that Leighton was responding to. And yet, when I pointed that out, he got upset that I would even bring that up, as if I should just know that he properly understands these things. When here he is letting his guest make a horrible example, and doubling down on that horrible example. It's a correct excuse, in other words. It's not like, my dog ate my homework when that really didn't happen. That's, that's, a, that's a false excuse. This is actual, a real excuse, and it's valid. 
I can't, Daddy, I can't pick you up. You're, you're, that's beyond my capacity. Natural capacity. Even if she wanted to, she couldn't pick you up. As your child, I can't do that. That's a good excuse. And then, and then Braxton's saying, nope, I'm not going to let you have that excuse, even though it's valid, even though it's correct, even though you're right. And then his guest comes right back and, what does he say, amp things up a bit here with an even crazier example. Let's amp it up a little bit. Let's say the president of the United States calls me to the White House lawn and says, rip that tree, that big mighty oak tree out of the ground and throw it across the United States. You guys see the problem? Yep. And I don't do it. And he says, you've got no excuse for not doing it. And I say, I can barely lift 50 pounds because I'm weak. Right. Even if you wanted to. Right. Notice his examples and the idea of excuse has, he's not, he's not tying it to the disposition of the person and whether or not they want to do or obey the person giving the command. Um, and you want me to rip this oak tree out of the ground? I can't. It's not within my capacity to do that. So, you know, could go on. You got to go check out that episode for more. For more, But the point here is pretty clear. Um, Leighton is allowing a guest to give a terrible example and not correcting him. And then when I correct his guest for him, he gets irritated and annoyed because supposedly he's constantly been making these corrections and being fair to the Calvinist position all along. But I think you guys can see with examples like this, and this is just one of many, right, that you can use the phrases moral ability and natural ability all day long. But if you don't demonstrate proper understanding of it and correct stuff like this, then of course I'm going to come along and correct it for you. And there's a lot of different examples that I've heard that come to mind over over the course of time. I don't have the time to go hunt them down in, in Leighton's episodes and play the actual clips, but I know for a fact, I remember him having a Louis Ruggiero on who said that Calvinism is like God throwing somebody off a cliff and commanding them to fly and then punishing them for not flying. Right? And again, um, I don't remember any correction from Leighton there. I specifically remember, once again, Braxton Hunter, or it might have been Wag uh, Brian Wagner, one of his guests, nonetheless, said that's like God putting a basketball hoop on the Empire State Building and commanding man to slam dunk it, and then punishing them for not being able to do that. Okay, Again, over and over and over. Not properly representing the difference between natural faculty ability and moral ability. Um, and one of the worst ones I ever heard, I think it was when James White was reviewing or going back and forth a little bit with uh, Leighton way, way back. Uh, Leighton said, Calvinism is like... Um, commanding your immobilized dog, your poor little immobilized one-legged dog to get up and, and walk or to come to you, and then when it doesn't do that because it can't walk, period, um, beating it, right? These are really stupidly bad, no offense, horrible examples, and you know it, Leighton. And so that's why I'm just saying, like, why would you ever bring these examples up? Why would you allow your guests to bring these examples up? Or if when they do, why aren't you correcting them, right? And then when I come along, somebody like me comes along and corrects them with a response, um, or corrects um, your lack of explaining these things, for example, in your article, then I'm the one who's, I should know better. I should know that you have always, thousands of times before, accurately and fairly represented these things. So, you know, what I really think is going on here is Leighton just thinks that throwing out the phrases, natural and moral ability, qualifies as properly representing and accurately explaining and being fair and all these things, when throwing them out every now and then doesn't do anything as far as demonstrating a proper use of them, right? And if you're going to ask me, do I need to be correcting these analogies every time your guest makes them? Well, absolutely, right? These analogies shouldn't even be being made in the first place, right? They're, they're so bad and so off the mark. And, and I've shown that it's not just your guest, but you have made them plenty of times as well. And so this brings us to what uh, I can already hear Leighton screaming and shouting, if he hasn't already, in his response so far, that he loves to point at God in the ultimate position, Right? And, and point out the fact that God has determined all these things and use that as an excuse to ignore all these things and say that somehow at the end of the day, none of it really matters in the, at the end. So what's the difference, right? If God's determined it all, then none of, all the, none of these qualifications that the Calvinists are making even matter. Right? I've heard him say that plenty of times as well. I'm sure he'll say it again. But I want to play an example that he made in his last response where he, he starts off by saying, look, I understand the differences between these things. Okay? And then he lays out an example with Cain and Abel where he, in my opinion, yeah, he properly explains the difference between natural and moral ability, and therefore he admits that it's present, it's there. But then he's going to double down and conclude that, well, since God determined it all, therefore I get to give ridiculous examples, and I'm justified in those ridiculous ridiculous examples, because once again, if God's determined it, then nothing matters. So let's, let's listen to this real quick. Hear me now, because I, I think you'll probably listen to this. We understand the difference between the natural capacities and the moral capacities. In fact, one of the illustrations I've used before that may be, may be helpful to you, uh, the Cain and Abel bringing the right sacrifice, okay, in faith, okay? 
Abel brought the right sacrifice in faith. Cain did not bring, bring the right sacrifice in faith. I think you would argue that naturally, na by nature, they both could have brought the right sacrifice. And I wouldn't just argue that. I think you just admitted you see the difference. So why didn't they bo both bring the right sacrifice? Well, according to Calvinism, because of a ontological moral problem with Cain, God obviously did something, whether regenerative work or something. Right, the or something. Like the verse, that, that passage doesn't tell us why, right? So we use other parts of the Bible to answer that question. To cause, effectually, somehow, able to bring the right sacrifice in faith, but he didn't do so for Cain, even though he seems to express his desire for Cain to do the right thing and even warns him about sin crouching at his door. But underneath all of this storyline, this narrative, we read Calvinism's determinism in it. God determined for Abel to bring the right sacrifice because he gave him the miracle of faith and he withheld it from Cain, who didn't have the natural capacity to believe and bring the right sacrifice, okay? So Cain cannot bring the right sacrifice apart from God's giving him the miracle of faith to do so, right? He cannot. It's an impossibility. Ultimately, right? Ultimately. You already admitted that they both hypothetically had the natural means of doing so, but yeah, ultimately, um, none of us can ultimately do otherwise. I've made that argument plenty of times in either view. Now, let's suppose that now, but listen here. So he, he lays it out fairly decently. Yeah, he recognizes difference between natural ability and moral ability, and right? But he's going to say that since God's ultimately in control of it all, listen to this. That God sent an angel to tie Cain to a tree when it was time for him to bring the right sacrifice. Now, not only is he morally incapable, he's also naturally incapable. Is he more or less incapable than he was in the first place? He's Depends on what category you're talking about, right? The same incapacity still exists. Whether he's chained to the tree or whether he's not chained to the tree. No, if he's chained to the tree, now he doesn't have the natural capacity either. So your example is just blowing up, like, spontaneously. And, and you think you're justified in the horrible example because, well, God determined it all. If he doesn't have the miracle of faith given to him, he cannot bring the right sacrifice. Are either within his control, being chained to the tree by angel, or being able to have the moral capacity to believe and bring the right sacrifice, are any one of those within Cain's control on Calvinism? No, both of them are completely outside of the control. So why not just say, that God could have chained him to the pole, and it would be perfectly just of God to do that and to hold Cain accountable for him not bringing the right sacrifice because he was chained to the pole by God. Why, why not just say that? All right, so you see he starts off with an accurate representation demonstrating that he does understand the differences between natural and moral ability, but then instead of addressing those things, he just concludes by saying, well, if God has ultimately determined it all, right, then you might as well just say he chained him to a tree, right? I, I don't understand how that follows at all, right? Just because my view has God determining all things does not mean that you get to ignore the way in which he has determined them. They, they are not the same things, right? Chaining someone to a tree, God determining that someone be chained to a tree so that they can't do it whether or not they want to, is not the same as thing as God determining that they will either want to or not want to. Those aren't the same thing. They're, they're, you might look at the end result and say, well, because God's determined it, but the way in which he's determined it is completely different. So Leighton wants to always focus on the fact that since you can't ultimately do otherwise— then how or why people do things is irrelevant. And his chain to the tree analogy directly following a proper understanding proves this. According to Leighton, if God determines all things, then God determining that Cain willingly refused to offer a sacrifice because of a disposition of hatred toward, toward God is no different than if God had chained him to a tree so that he couldn't offer a sacrifice to God even if he wanted to. According to Leighton, there's no difference. And I just think that's absolutely absurd. We're discussing storyline level issues. We're asking questions like, why people are doing things, or in what sense can they do otherwise, right? There's all the difference in the world between those things when you're looking at the storyline level. If you want to ask ultimate questions, that's fine. But just remember that all Christians, all Christians, have to ask and answer the ultimate questions. How many times do I have to point out that the future being quote-unquote fixed is something that all Christians are forced to accept and understand? How many times do I have to point out that even in your view, God creates you knowing your entire future, and it's not up to you to be created. God could have created you in a million different ways, with a million different lives resulting. And it's up to God, not you, it's up to God which life you get. Right? It's not up to you. So ultimately, it's not up to you, is it? Even in your view. And this shows that the ultimate determiner is not you, but it is in fact God, no matter what Christian view you decide to settle down into. God's choice to create you when and where and how he creates you comes before, even logically, prior to any knowledge he might have of what you will do when you exist, right? God can't know anything about you unless he first foreknows the way in which he's going to make you. So his knowledge of what you will do is the result of the way in which he creates you. So ultimately, 
which of those million different lives you live out is up to God. It's not up to you. God is the one who chooses when, where, and how to create you. So does that mean, therefore, that we can conclude that whatever happens, even in your view, that whatever happens in the life that God chooses to create you with is just meaningless and irrelevant? If you're going to do what you're going to do tomorrow, right, and and nothing's going to change that, does that mean that when you eat lunch willingly tomorrow, that that's no different than if someone had chained you to a tree and forced you to eat lunch tomorrow? I mean, this is a level of absurdity that, that you're resorting to, and when you flip it back on yourself, you can see how absurd it is, right? You should see... You should see that us being unable to do otherwise in the ultimate sense does not make what is occurring on the storyline level meaningless or irrelevant, nor does it justify your ignoring of them and making these terrible analogies. So I'm going to save more on the ultimate topic for the, the, the episode which I respond and talk about is God the author of evil, right? But I just want to point out very briefly that how Leighton really thinks that he is justified in his misrepresentations, right? So even when, this is the order of what, what occurs, right? Leighton throws out a horrible analogy, or one of his guests does, and then he doubles down on it with no correction. Terrible misrepresentations. Some Calvinist like me comes along and corrects him, and Leighton is baffled at how we could possibly think that he doesn't understand the things that we correct him on, right? I mean, of course he already knew what we're correcting him on, even though he failed to mention that correction when he made the example or when his guest made the example. And then in the end, Leighton's going to say, well, it doesn't matter anyways, because since God determined it all, it's the same thing. My horrible analogies of beating your dog who couldn't obey you or commanding your daughter to lift you up with the sofa and then beating her or being thrown off a cliff and commanded to fly or being commanded to tear trees out of the ground and throw them across the United States. All of these things are justified in Leighton's mind. So he's probably just going to continue to make these horrible examples. So how can you win, right? You can't win, right? Leighton feels like he's justified in his use of these types of misrepresentations. And so it's a lose-lose for us, right? If we correct him, he says it doesn't matter in the end because God determined it. So what I can't help but get out of all of this is that here I am, I'm the Calvinist, I'm taking the time and the effort to go through and systematically try to understand reality and the different categories that we, we experience and that we know exist, natural faculties, moral abilities, dispositions, hatred, love, can we forgive, can't we forgive, can we come to God, can't we come to God, using scripture, which gives word-for-word examples of these things, and trying to understand it all, and then Leighton comes along and says, well, since you believe God determined it all, then all that storyline level stuff is completely irrelevant, and I just find that absurd, right? You're not actually addressing, you're, you're basically admitting that everything I'm saying about natural and moral ability is true, you're just, because you don't have an argument against it, you're just basically saying at the end of the day, well, since God determined it, I just get to ignore all those things. And that shows the weakness, um, no offense, of, of your position when it comes to these topics. Now, I'd like to make another quick point here. Um, by using Leighton's own logic um, against himself, listen to what Leighton here says um, in a recent episode um, on the, con- the free will idea of judicial hardening. Listen to this because God decreed him to be that way from birth and he had no control over it? Or is God knowing Judas, knowing Pilate, using them in their rebellion to bring about a good purpose through them? There's a big difference between knowing and using somebody in their rebellion, strengthening them in their resolve, blinding them from the truth that could change their, their, uh, their, their, uh, their path, blinding them from that to bring about a purpose through their rebellion versus him determining their rebellion from birth where they could not have done otherwise. There's a huge difference between those two things. So just a, a quick side note on this concept, right? The free will take on judicial hardening has always uh, sort of amused me. So in general, everybody's going to say Calvinism is terrible because it has God determining the people's sin and holding them responsible. This is just horrible. Can't accept this. But oh, look, God did it here and there and here and there in the Bible. So oops, I guess we have to think up, you know, an excuse as to why it's okay for God to do it here and there, you know, in the Bible. So we come up with the free will take on judicial hardening, which is that it's perfectly okay perfectly acceptable, morally acceptable for God to determine that someone sin more once they've sinned first. How convenient, right? So I guess Calvinism can actually be true, but only after we sin first, which I guess means since we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, um, I guess Calvinism can be true most of the time, in fact, like 99.999% of the time, right? I mean, if we're all sinners, when is God not allowed to harden us or control or, de- or determine our sin? Right, you know, so many questions for this, this whole inconsistent judicial hardening concept. But back to the point and why I brought this up, I'd like to ask Leighton about Pharaoh, 
Uh, prime example of judicial hardening, obviously. I'd like to ask Leighton about Pharaoh not letting the people go. Okay, He just admitted that God is taking an action to uh, sort of blind people or harden them in the resolve so that they sin further, so that they sin more. Right, As Leighton said, blinding them, blinding them to the things that could change their path. In their resolve, blinding them from the truth that could change their, their, uh, their, their, uh, their path. So Leighton, could Pharaoh have let the people go? If not, what kind of inability is that? And if so, in what sense could he have let the people go? Obviously, my point here is that it's not in the ultimate sense, right? God made absolutely sure, according to your own admission. God blinded him to something that could have changed his path. God made sure, ultimately, and absolutely, and unchangeably sure, that Pharaoh would not let the people go, just as God said he would do, over and over again. So my point here is that if we take your logic from earlier about Cain and Abel, that if Cain ultimately couldn't do otherwise, then Cain having a moral inability is no different than Cain being chained to a tree and having a natural inability. If we apply your own logic here, I guess Pharaoh being judicially hardened by God so that he will not let the people go is no different than if God had sent an angel to chain him to a tree so that he couldn't let the people go, even if he wanted to, right? Or if, if the angel sewed his mouth shut so that he couldn't give the command to let the people go, even if he wanted to. Exact same logic you used earlier, in light of not being able to ultimately do otherwise, flipped back on you. And just one final little jab here. Um, if, if God is blinding people to something that could change their path, how does this not give the sinner an excuse? How can Pharaoh not say, God, if you had not hardened me and blinded me, I would have repented, and I would have let the people go. So my sin is your fault. And don't distract away from the current point, the current sin of Pharaoh, by pointing back and saying, oh, well, if Pharaoh had just never sinned to begin with, then God wouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. I mean, yeah, okay, so if Pharaoh had done a better job with his free will than every single other human being who has ever existed, including Adam and Eve, then God couldn't be doing those things. Okay, that's great. But that's, that's not the reality we have, right? So deal with the reality. God determined that Pharaoh's sin, right, by not letting the people go, and he punishes him for that sin. We're not talking about past sin. We're talking about that sin, the sin to not let the people go, effectually brought about by God to your own admission. And since Pharaoh could not have ultimately done otherwise, I guess God could have just as easily chained him to a tree and walked his own people out, right? Skip all the, that plague stuff. Skip all the killing the firstborn stuff, right? Just chain him to a tree because ultimately that's the same thing, right? That's your logic. But of course, it's not the same thing. And you would have to argue, just as I have, that the way in which God does things is extremely important to recognize as well. So I'm going to make another quick point here. Uh, Leighton talks about, I'm going to play a clip. He, he talks about saving faith as if it's his own faculty. And, and, and no offense to Leighton, but if, if you do actually properly understand what I'm trying to get across, then you'll realize that saving faith is simply a reference to the way in which our faculty of faith is being used. But uh, let me play this first. You're going you're gonna to hear me start first, and then he's going to be responding. That's correct. And I've made the distinction there between the fact that uh, an old and regenerate heart still has a faculty of faith, it's just being misused, and a new regenerated heart has that same faculty of faith just being... Not saving faith. We're talking about saving faith here. Okay? He doesn't have the capacity or faculty for saving faith. Because what is saving faith? Belief in Jesus. Belief in God. Right. It's the way in which your faculty of faith is being used to believe in God, right? It's not its own faculty. And I think after everything I've laid on this episode, people should be able to see where the, the error he's making there. Maybe that was just his, you know, he's doing this live on the fly. I, I think even he would see that that's an error, right? Saving faith is not its own faculty. Saving faith is the, a particular way in which our faith is being used, right? It's either, we're either using our, our faculty of faith rightly and savingly or wrongly, right? So it's not, it's not its own faculty. But this leads into, he's continuing this, this same clip, picking up right away. Um, Leighton's going to claim that, well, in Calvinism, people can believe and respond to anything and everything as long as it's not God in the Bible. So continuing on. He doesn't have that. He can have faith in Confucius. He can have faith in his history book. He can have faith in anything but God on Calvinism. He just, he, so he has the faculty to put his trust in anything except what it should be put in. Right, and, and after everything I've laid out here, you should be able to pick up on the error of, of this point, okay? Remember, moral abilities are directly tied to the moral dispositions and the people or things involved, okay? Leighton seems to want to view the idea of moral ability 
as this general thing that only comes up or is applicable only when we talk about God in the Bible, right? But this is clearly false, as I've demonstrated with Joseph and his brothers, right? So let's use some of the examples Leighton just mentioned here and, and, and run with them and, and understand them. So if someone is believing in a law, for example, then after all I've said, we can easily say that while they're believing in the false god of law, they cannot be believing in the god of Mormonism or Buddha or even the true god Yahweh, right? Again, we're talking about moral ability here. Now you might stop me and say, well, they can believe in all those other things because they have the faculty of faith. Right? That's been the agreement from stage one. They could believe in those other things if they wanted to, and they could believe in God if they wanted to. But as long as they desire and want to believe in Allah, right? as long as that disposition is in place, they can't believe in those other things. Right? It's not just God. It's, it's anything other than Allah. Right? And obviously when I say anything, I'm, sp I'm speaking categorically in terms of God. Right? I'm not saying that someone who believes in Allah can't also believe in, I don't know, the Big Bang Theory or ghosts. I'm, I'm, we're talking about categorically here, right? While someone is believing in a law, they're morally unable to believe in God, for example, right? And that disposition needs to change towards a law, away from a law, and in favor of God in order for someone to be morally able to then believe in God. And those of us who believe in God, right, right now, are morally unable to believe in a law, right? So the dispositions as they switch, the moral abilities switch with them, and it just depends on what you're referencing and looking at. So this is what I mean when I respond to Leighton's claim that, well, you, you have the moral ability to believe in anything except God. Well, not necessarily. It depends on what you're looking at. So once you localize and specify where the moral inability is, is located, so to speak, and why it's there, you can see that this idea of natural and moral ability is applicable to everything in life. It's not just God in the Bible. So when Leighton says people can believe in everything except God in the Bible, it's not true. People can believe in everything, including God in the Bible, if they want to. And so to answer the specific question about God, or the Bible, or Allah, or Buddha, or whatever else, we have to ask, what is that person's disposition toward that particular thing? Then and only then can we answer the question of whether or not they can, in terms of moral ability, believe that particular thing, right? So a person, once again, who currently believes in Allah, is not only morally unable to believe in God in the Bible, but is also morally unable to believe in Buddha or the God of Mormonism, etc. It just depends on where your reference point is and what angle you're looking at it from. The only thing I will admit and point out is that when it comes to believing in God in the Bible, when it comes to true saving faith, when it comes to a true proper use of the faculty of faith, it does in fact require a supernatural work of God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the ultimate reason behind why a disposition toward God will change, right? While dispositions towards other things like false gods and false, false beliefs those dispositions can change for all sorts of non-supernatural reasons. But once again, while those dispositions are in place, while somebody is believing in a law, it's not just that they can't believe in God, they can't believe in the other things either, right? Until these dispositions change. This is the whole point of moral inability. It's tied directly to the dispositions and the things involved. Right, so we're going to wrap this up on this particular episode. Um, sorry it had to be so long just for this simple idea of moral inability, but I hope you guys can see... When we talk about these terms, if we just throw phrases around and throw words around, we're going to be talking past each other. And in my opinion, that's what people have done for forever, right? They're just talking past each other. They're using phrases differently. Nothing really ever gets accomplished. So when I take the time to do this, it's not because I'm trying to be long-winded. My point is to get to the bottom of these things and really get people to understand the differences, okay? So that they can make decisions for themselves on, on which is right. I think that's the only way this can be done. Um, so next, the next episode is going to be on the idea of influences and whether, you know, whether or not they're determinative of our choices. What is the relationship between our choices and influences? It's going to be a very interesting topic as well. Um, I want to just, I could have made, I, I planned originally to make those two things together as one episode, but this is already an hour long, so it would have been even longer. I want to break this up since, it's, since I'm busy. It's taken me longer than I thought to put these out. I want to break these up and at least get something out there for you guys to listen to. And Leighton can make the decision on his own whether or not to respond to each one you know, separately or break them down. And, and however he wants to do it, I'm not sure. But I'm going to put the timestamps in for Leighton so that he can, at least ahead of time, look at the timestamps and say, okay, I want to jump to here, respond to this, jump to here, respond to that. It's just the nature, like you said, of doing it live or whatever. You, you, sometimes you might have to skip things and you might accidentally skip things that are important. I'm not going to hold that against you or anything like that. So again, um, I'm going to get on the next portion the next episode i hope you guys have enjoyed this found it beneficial you can find the consistent calvinism podcast on all your favorite podcasting apps 
You can uh, subscribe on YouTube, Consistent Calvinism on YouTube, and you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for fun discussions there as well. Um, Hopefully I have the next episode out within the next week or so. So you guys take it easy and remember to stay consistent, my friends. Mm -hmm.